0: I have my windows open wide again tonight to let the sounds of the night birds and creatures of the night take part in this podcast. So let's press on. The subject of this podcast is witchcraft and the latter-day myth-makers. Let's try and fix some of that and look at the recorded historical practices of real white witches. There is much imagined and written down by people who, in recent times, have made incredible assumptions, often showing complete ignorance of recorded history, of what pertains to witchcraft and what does not. The question is, was this done out of ignorance, or was it done intentionally? In the case of Gerald Gardner, probably most of the former and partly the latter. I've hinted at this before but it would seem that he wanted to wash Lucifer out of Leyland's Aradia, and yet to use the book to create a ritualistic dogma which does not exist within Aradia. Aradia is about a slave class of people who have broken free, now live apart, and they view mainstream society and anyone affluent as their enemy. Gardner, of course, could not have that in his new improved Wicca. Okay, so the obvious question here would be, Do any other similar historical records of witchcraft exist which could corroborate this idea? In particular, since Gardiner was looking for evidence of British witchcraft, yet is about Italian witchcraft? Well, yes there are. Let's start by ignoring the testimonies of alleged witches who were forced to make under duress by the very oppressive church and state who, through pain and threat of death, could make people admit anything. Sure, we can glean some things from them, but in the main, we know how flawed that is as an historical resource. One good resource comes down to us from the 19th century historian, John Gregerson Campbell, who thankfully observed and accurately recorded the folklore, beliefs and practices of the witches in the Scottish Highlands. If Gerald Gardner had found Campbell's book instead of Aradia, Wicca would probably look very different today. Campbell admits, for instance, in parts of his book that he could not locate the words for certain charms, so clearly he knew of them, and so did others. But the older people who provided him with oral testimonies could not recall them either. Such are the flaws of oral testimony, which I have experienced myself, with half-remembered stories and magical charms, once known to my forebears, that I had once, or observed, but cannot now recall. Until the likes of Leyland and Campbell, no one had written these things down. These things were dependent on the continued practice and conference of these spells, charms and practices. What we can say with certainty is that what was remembered and written down is most likely true. I'd go further and say that Campbell's knowledge and recollection of these things suggests strongly that he himself, unlike Charles Leyland, was a practitioner of some type of witchcraft. He easily makes comparisons, for instance, between Scottish Highland witches and the practices of witches in the south of England. Campbell says of the witches of the Scottish Highlands, that they had much in common with their sisters in the south, but in comparison, there was little that could be considered black or evil in their character. Tales of them make no mention, for instance, of things like incubuses or succubuses, midnight meetings or dancing with the devil. Neither, he goes on, is there any mention of riding on broomsticks nor raising the dead by necromancy. To be a practicing witch in the highlands, required a knowledge of the necessary charms and the courage to use them. This seems to have been all that was requisite. Campbell's use of the word courage here could mean many things, but I assume he was probably alluding to punishments that could be inflicted on the practitioner under the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which, of course, was not repealed until 1951. According to Campbell, Generally, the reputed witch was often a superstitious and perhaps ill-favoured old woman who possessed a knowledge of rhymes and charms for the healing of disease in both man and beast and kept her own cattle from harm. In Scots Gaelic, you would have called this person a Banna Siach, which is a female witch. Now, it is clear that these women claimed to have influence over the unseen powers of nature and to have intercourse with spirits which could influence events in our world. More importantly, that they themselves believed in the efficacy of the arts that they practised and in their possession of the magical powers which others were willing to accredit them with. In short, they weren't faking it. They believed in what they practised. Now although Campbell appears doubting and cynical at times within his writing, consider that if things were fake and did not work, would people continue to believe in them? No, people believe in things which have been seen to work. It's just like the same reason which remedies for ailments, once believed in tribal folklore, become actual medications for that condition because frankly they are found to do exactly what people long believed that they did. One word that is associated with witches, which has fallen out of use, is cantrip. It's a word of Scottish origin to mean the working of a magical spell of any kind, and it's believed to be derived from the Gaelic cancharach. so perhaps it's like a kind of mouth music, a sort of formulated diddling common in folk traditions, like a Piper's mnemonic chant. In carrying out their unhallowed cantrips, witches, it is claimed, assumed various shapes. They became gulls, cormorants, ravens, rats, mice, black sheep, swelling waves, whales, and very frequently, cats and hares. In addition to being shapeshifters, witches had a machinery of charms and incantations. These highland witches wore magic caps and carried a magic staff, which was called an an-lorgon. The word lorg means a staff, which conveyed authority to its bearer. Further meanings of lorg indicate a path or a track. Such witches were unusually busy on particular nights of the year. These were particularly the last night of every quarter. On Beltin night, they stayed awake all night. Their object seems to have been to keep evil away, from their own cattle, and from those of farmers who employed them for the purpose. We have a direct battle here going on between good and evil. A battle between black and white magic. Campbell uses the term black and white witches. The spells of other witches, of course, could be counteracted. It would not be right that such dangerous powers should be left unchecked. Witches practising black magic could hurt, not help, says Campbell. Their power was only one of mischief. Here Campbell emphasises that white witches were honest, harmless, practitioners of sorcery, whom our custom and country doth call wise men and wise women. Yea, he has something positive to say at last. White witches, by magic charms, cure disease in man and beast bestowed luck, warded off dangers, and secured various benefits to those who resorted to them. One or more such wise people were to be found in every district, and any accusation of dabbling in forbidden arts or of being in league with the devil would be indignantly resented by them. They claimed their powers were given for a good purpose and to counteract the powers of evil, The machinery by which they secured these blessings to humanity consisted of rhymes or incantations, rites and ceremonies, plants and stones of virtue, observance of propitious seasons, etc. The words or rhymes were praiseworthy, commendations addressed to various saints, and the rites were harmless and merely trifling.